I'm Josh Davey. And I'm Alex Dunning. And we're the hosts of the Go Find Yourself podcast. A podcast created to inspire and unpack candid conversations with the best entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders in their field right now. Powered by Cedars, we're the UK's number one online private equity marketplace, helping groundbreaking startups from around the world receive the funding they need to take their business to the next level. Stick around as we bring you weekly episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love the podcast, don't forget to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We really like it. Today on the podcast, we have Mansour, CEO of Bbox. Um, not a hugely well-known company in the UK, but around the world, they're doing a huge amount to help uh, individuals out of poverty by providing electricity. Yeah, Bbox are one of my favorite companies based in the UK. They provide off-grid solar energy to, to people all around the frontier economies in the developing world. Uh, so it's a super interesting entrepreneurship story and you know, started with Mansour telling us that he saw in 2008, 1.6 billion people still would live without energy, which obviously shocked him, shocked us, and, and probably shocks you. So it's really interesting to hear him tackle that story. Yeah, absolutely. We get a kind of whistle-stop tour through Mansour's career. He discusses fundraising, how decentralization and digitization necessarily go hand in hand, um, and also talks about cost-effective way, cost ways to produce energy at home. So for anyone who is interested in problem-solving or if they are simply interested in how entrepreneurship can do a lot more good um, and balance profit with purpose, then today is an episode for you. Hope you enjoy yeah, and don't forget, um, if you want to be in for a chance of winning investment credit, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts um, and visit cedars.com forward slash sign up or click the link in the description to sign up to Cedars and be able to chance of winning. Hello and welcome to Go Fund Yourself, Mansoor. For anyone who isn't aware, could you give us an overview of, of what Bbox is, how its business model works, and, and the key things you've achieved since, since launching? Sure, thanks for having me, firstly. The problem that Bbox picked to solve was the fact that 1.4 billion people around the world have no access to electricity whatsoever, and a further 1 billion people have really unreliable access to electricity. So basically, we're talking about one third of mankind living in genuine energy poverty, something that that as a company we felt is absolutely essential to solve to ensure an acceptable quality of life and that sort of future digital inclusion. I think everyone would agree that electricity is so fundamental to modern life. Uh, I've been trying to solve that problem over the years is we install solar home systems and large CNI solar. So that means that we install solar panels, batteries, a range of appliances at businesses and households. And we put them on financing to customers. And the customers pay us using mobile money. So mobile money is this quite uniquely African phenomena in the beginning, which now has become a more developing world phenomena, being able to use your phone as a bank and to transfer money. So they, they pay us using mobile money. When they pay us, it switches on. When they don't pay us, it switches off. And the daily cost of that, that service is cheaper than the spend on kerosene, candles, batteries, diesel, etc. So it's actually the, the cheapest, the most cleanest form of energy available to customers. So to date, we have uh, installed little more than 200,000 homes and businesses across Africa, mostly focused in East Africa. On a daily basis, we are installing something in, in the order of 300 to 500 new homes and businesses per day. So it actually makes us probably the largest distributed energy company on the continent and we employ around 800 people in some nine offices have some 2,000 people on our sales agent network so it's grown a bit. 
sounds like it's been pretty stratospheric growth, actually. You know, growth is one of those things that never looks like growth internally. It just looks like more problems. <laughs> it just externally looks like growth. I mean, you talked there a little bit about uh, mobile money and the impact that that's had on the business model. And I think one thing that's interesting, you know, sort of with mobile payments and similar sort of thing with mobile uh, telecommunications is in a lot of developing countries that sort of bypassed old systems to adopt new ones. You think of like fixed line telecommunication infrastructure has been bypassed by, by mobile in a lot of countries. Do you see, you know, sort of parallels that might happen with clean energy production in sort of developing countries and it might bypass sort of the old fossil fuel reliance that we have in the UK, for example? As an engineer, I think that's the most exciting part, that ability of technology to really allow for that leapfrogging to happen. And I think in distressed or extreme environments, the engineering becomes also the most fun and most efficient. So I think Africa has actually a history of doing so. It's already done it twice in our own lifetime. One with the telecom, as you mentioned, from fixed line to the modern cellular network. The second time it's done is actually the banking. I mean, in terms of digital payments, definitely fast. I was able to send money mobile to mobile in Kenya many years before I could do it here. I think it's exactly the same thing that's happening in an energy space as well. And why? It's because they start from a blank piece of paper, right? So when when certain countries and certain societies have the means now to actually think about how to electrify themselves, they have solved some of the bigger issues of peace and stability, of ensuring food security, etc. Another big next question becomes how do we power ourselves? And that's something that I think we, the time is right. And in terms of what what's happening in the in the developing world in terms of self-generation, self-storage, and this decentralized energy future, I personally believe is also the, the blueprint of how energy is going to happen everywhere. Well, you, you said that there's a decentralized energy. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to B-Box? And, and what does that look like? How does that crystallize in the future? The whole concept of decentralization, which is very linked to digitalization, I'll explain that, is, is the fact that basically the cost of cables is in certain circumstances now more expensive than the cost of having your own battery. And the battery technology and and the cost of generating your own power and storing it yourself is cheaper than producing it at a central location and having transmission lines, etc. And that's the big economic revolution that's happening. So already for our customer, it is far, far cheaper to produce your own power, store your own power and use it than building a central power plant, transmission lines, etc. And it is a quite a few drivers behind that better batteries of course and the things in your pocket is hopefully things on our streets are driving those sort of things lesser so maybe in this country but in terms of battery technology but in terms of appliances as well the the, the other reality is that energy efficiency is in everyone's household just this room the light bulbs the light that we're using in this room probably like 20 years ago we would have to spend 100 times more energy for the same amount of light this this energy efficiency is, is coming in everywhere so for less power, you can have more experience. And at the same time, the storage cost is lower, the generation cost is lower, etc. And why does the digitalization with decentralized goes hand in hand? And I think that's something that many people don't fully appreciate up front, is that in a decentralized world, all your problems are decentralized. You can't send your best engineer to a central power plant anymore, right? Your technician guy to a centralized grid network. You have to actually predict problems before they happen and being able to have the right product at the right place at the right time with the right person dispatch to the right location. And that actually is a huge technical problem. So it's about collecting gazillions of data points, uh, predicting problems before they're happening, and actually managing a distributed workforce. So that's where decentralized and digitalization comes hand in hand. 
Yeah, I think we'll go on to that data um, play in, in a bit as well. But one thing, you talked about that sort of economic revolution. Uh, what does that mean for your customer? And, and talk us through that sort of customer journey for someone who uses a B-Box device to sort of power their home or appliances. I will do my, my best to justify it to using just words in terms of describing a customer. But if you can imagine a rural household in the middle of nowhere with little road access, etc. It's a household of maybe two rooms, a small farm attached to it, family size of maybe anything anywhere between four to eight people, a sort of family size. It's a, probably a family that's dependent on agricultural income, seasonal incomes. And they're spending probably one third of their income. And they're probably earning on a disposable basis something around like $80 a month as a family, as a whole family. So on an individual basis, probably around like $1 a day, $1.5 a day per person. So definitely at the poverty line or just below the poverty line sort of situation. And they spend maybe 20-ish dollars of that money on kerosene, candles, batteries for their phones. Important thing that actually there's more phones in Africa now than people and there's more active SIM cards than people. So it can just demonstrate how essential a phone is to actually livelihood. That's why people have a phone. So that's the sort of person we're talking about. And if we approach them, they find us, we knock on the door for basically around $7. The next day they can watch Premier League football. And that's at their own home. That's the sort of leapfrog that happens. One of my investors calls it like 100 years of industrialization in a box, which is in some ways true. So, So the next day they can have a TV, a radio, multiple light bulb, a fan, charged phones, basically have that on-grid experience in off-grid settings. So it is quite revolutionary. I've seen people cry, customers cry about it. I think out of happiness, I would hope. I've seen people really be a bit like shocked. It takes time for them to adjust to a lifestyle which involves electricity, like how do I use it? When do I use it? Over carefulness. There's a lot of consumer education that's also required when you're having such a rapid transition. Yeah. And you talked about it there, like the impact that it have on people's lives. Do you have a favorite story or favorite statistic that, that's come out of the work that you've done today? Still look, I still remember the most is this one person in Rwanda. I think, I don't know how old he is now, but it's maybe five, six, seven years ago. He, he bought a solar home system and started a barbershop. So uh, people in that part of the world like to keep quite short hair. So having a, a electricity and have a shaver is a pretty cool thing. And profitable clearly so he grew that empire to last time i checked which a few years ago to just below 10 shop 10 barber shops so i think we're seeing one person like using it in an enterprising way actually creating a bit of a mini empire is pretty cool i do think we we cut more hair in our business or power more business than tony and guy uh, on, a, <laughs> on, a, on a daily basis <laughs> but uh, i have no hard facts to back that up but uh, if i had to put a bet that would be the case so you're in the hairdressing business rather than the, the yeah. conglomerate. <laughs> That's why I tell people when I don't want to tell the whole background story, <laughs> like what you do, cut hair in Africa. You're clearly having a real impact on sort of society. Do you find that the governments that you're working with are supportive? And how are you finding working with, with governments that are different from the ones that we have in the UK and the US? There's no one answer to that because obviously like Africa is not one country, it's multiple countries in the developing world has a different set of like issues. I guess it, it goes from a spectrum of we have no clue what you're doing and how does this fit to our national plan or if they even have a national plan to some governments that have a very detailed national plan where they've understood what the future of energy looks like and actually a kind of driving policy to solve it. I genuinely believe if you want to hit this social development goal number seven, the UN 
UN Sustainability Goals. Number seven is providing universal electricity to everyone on the planet by 2030. Then we need to have this interplay between policy and business. The policy needs to be there to create a framework for business to invest and business needs to be there to drive what the policy needs to look like, right? So that, that, that sort of interplay needs to happen. I think two countries, if I may mention them, are doing this particularly well. One is Togo and one is Rwanda, uh, where we both active where there's a national plan, which basically says that X percent of the population in a quite detailed way will have solar home system, X percent will have mini grids, here the grid will get extended, etc. And there's quality standards and, and minimum expectations of service on both those levels. So I think that sort of thing allows us to work very closely with the government as a private sector player in a more utility-like fashion. And there's other places that there is no framework, no policy, etc. So it's a pure commercial opportunities. I would say that's currently the majority of our portfolio. Um, and I'm already thinking that in Togo, there's a subsidy available to, to Beatbox customers. So as a hardcore capitalist, I guess I don't like subsidies. But then there is a, also an equally cold fact as well, which is that our financial model has unlocked inclusion at a quite large scale, but not universally. There's still peoples of society that are too poor to afford electricity. So there is energy poverty as it exists here in a different form where the people can't afford the utility bills for whatever set of reasons. The same thing happens everywhere. So the question then is to a government, what do you want to do? As a, as a private company, we cannot serve them because it's uneconomical and that's our responsibility to generate an economic return at the end of the day. But uh, as a government, they need to reach the target. So the compromise is a, some sort of a subsidy program. So the Togo subsidy program is particularly interesting because I think it's the first framework in Africa that actually could allow for universal electricity by 2030 and actually have that sort of right interplay between private sector and public sector. So from that perspective, if a government, I guess, they have a vision of electrifying everyone, then in most places such a subsidy would be required, as I understand is also the case in this country, yeah, right? So you get some help from the government if you can't afford your bills to a certain degree. Let's probably take it back to the start a little bit. So you, in its original guise, I guess, B-Box was founded whilst you were at university, yeah. right? Did this come out of something you were doing, you said, as an engineer? Was this something that you were doing at the time or was it something you were particularly passionate about? How did you formulate yeah. the idea? So, yeah, I founded a company with Chris and Laurent, so who are two of my class fellows, I guess, at, at Imperial when I was studying electrical engineering. I met Laurent the first day. I thought he was French. Turns out he was Belgian. And Chris was this sporty, hockey-playing English guy. So that was fun as well to, to see that world. So the whole thing started actually by, this is back in 2008, I saw an advert in Time magazine and this advert was about Rolex of all things. And unlike normal Rolex adverts, I don't know if you've seen many of those, they're typically about yacht golf or sailing and things like that. This one in particular was about the fact that Rolex gave an award to an NGO in Nepal for providing electricity to rural homes. And as an electrical engineer, uh, a student at least at that time in my second year, I thought that was interesting but nothing too special. What I thought was shocking in that advert was it was mentioning that 1.4 or 1.6 billion people had no electricity. And having been born in Pakistan, grew up in Pakistan, Saudi Arabia and Sweden, having that experience between the developing world and developed world and studied here, I was a bit shocked. No one told me. (laughs) So it's one of those things. It's like, then I started realizing that people who don't have electricity are actually living in darkness in like they've forgotten. No one 
thinks about them. But it is one third of mankind if you include people who have unreliable access to electricity. That's kind of triggered the whole thought process. Is it, is it a policy issue? Is it an economic issue? And to, to some degree of annoyance at, at dinner and other conversations. Um, at the same time, I used to be the vice chairman for the Political Philosophy Society for University of London Imperial. And I was organizing this event about uh, Genocide Awareness Week. And there was two events I organized that week. One was about the Holocaust and one was about the Rwandan genocide. I knew very little about Rwanda or Africa or the Rwandan genocide, frankly speaking. And the Holocaust event was extremely sad, rightfully sad. But the Rwandan event, the thing that shocked me when we organized it, it had an aura of positivity. In a sense, it happened we forgave and we're creating this country that's ranked at the World Bank best place to do business in Africa among the best places. Like what is this sort of country? So that's why me and me and Laurent ended up going to Rwanda during Easter break to check this place out. And at the same time, these questions were brewing in our head that then resulted in an organization called Equinox, which was kind of like a student-run organization to kind of bridge the classroom learning in the real-world problem. And we managed to electrify some 600 households while we still were students and during our summer breaks, get some 40 students involved and raised a bunch of capital to do so. So that was kind of like the starting point from how stumbling upon a problem to how Rwanda came into a picture to how we set up this first student initiative that kind of resulted in Beanbox eventually. Not a planned journey, in other words. <laughs> you mentioned earlier sort of being a, a, a staunch capitalist and things like that. Is, do you think entrepreneurship and this view has always been something that you've been feeling like you're working towards? Or was it just, you know, as you were at university and the stars started aligning that it, it, you fell into it? In all honesty, I never have felt that I'm running a company, even right now. For me, it's all, always about solving a problem. So I think that like need to solve a problem, whether it's playing chess, solving puzzle, or like working out what, how should I respond to this email. It's all in the same category. I guess a business is just a set of people that solve enough problems. So that's how I think about it. So I never like, I want to be an entrepreneur, la la la. That personally has never happened to me. I think quite a few entrepreneurs who share that sort of a uh, Thing. I think very few people go like, hey, I'm going to start a company and I'm going to make X amount. I don't think that happens that often. Yeah. Well, I think if the passion's not there, yeah. it's, it's tough to get through those early problems. Maybe I should. Yeah. My, my, my shareholders might be happier. <laughs> Who knows? Talking about those, those early days and those early problems, what were a few of the ones that stand out? I mean, back in 2010 when we started Beatbox, Cedars, I don't think, was around, right? No, I think we were just being formed um, as an idea at that point. Yeah, so I think that's the seed capital, VC, EIS, and all that kind of stuff that we're talking about nowadays just did not exist, right? So, so, so that like when we talk about venture capital stuff, like actually we raised our first money in, in California. London was an impossible place to raise money. Like people went like, what, what are you? Who are you? Why are you, right? Those sort of questions, which were interesting, more, more interesting back then. So I think access to capital was an issue. Second thing was Africa and technology, like linking those two words together was like in most people's mind, like Africa is a place for charity, is not a place to develop technology or like a fast moving consumer goods business business or a utility in that space. So convincing people that the technology actually drives efficiency, which creates markets, which creates wealth, was a difficult sell to certain people. Um, so I think it took a quite a good while to, to, to convince them. And last thing was, uh, to be honest with you, was the complexity of our business. We had to design our product, manufacture, install, finance. So we were not just a software company, all due respect to all software companies out there, but like, in a sense, we're not in one location. We were immediately, uh, we had to be international uh, from a young company. That created an extra set of complexity as well.
Yeah, I think one thing that's really interesting, obviously you're headquartered in the UK. How difficult was that to sort of build an international company from day one? Hard. We started off at practically our first office was in China, in Guangzhou. Then, yeah, we kind of grew out of there. Then we opened up here in London. And we kind of followed the container, like from product design. Back in the day, we were designing our products ourselves. We didn't really have staff. So uh, we kind of designed it on paper, went to China, made it follow the container to Africa, wait for the container to arrive, and then installed it. We learned a lot of things. Like I, I still remember the first investor call I had. Someone went on about Series A. I was like, what the hell is this person talking about? What is Series A? The first container we imported, some random person was like, where's your bill of lading? And we all looked at each other. What is this bill of lading thing? Just telling our ignorance sometimes is a bliss for risk. So I think one of the things that's interesting is you talked about sort of creating markets and creating impacts and using this sort of proliferation of technology. Do you, in your own mind, see Bbox as a social enterprise? Is that, is that sort of anything that's enshrined in, in your mission statement or in the way that you do business? Or is it just the way that you do business creates impact? And It's an interesting one because a lot of people describe us such. I think there's a list this morning that we made on that also describes us such, uh, making the world better, etc. I've never thought about Bbox that way, in all honesty. I'm just seeing that Bbox is a company that is solving a set of customers' problems. Mm-hmm. And isn't all business that? Like, if you're not solving someone's problem or someone's needs, you're not really in business, right? The, the only thing that might make Bbox a bit extra, which I can appreciate, is that our appetite for risk, right? Our appetite for risk of operating in countries where otherwise people would not. But then again, risk equals reward, I would hope. Um, so I would hope that our risk is, uh, like our returns are adjusted for the risk that we are participating in. But then again, you know, you're dealing with really poor people in, in some really fragile countries. So things like government support for subsidies or other sort of things is needed. But does that need sometimes justify us for being a social enterprise? I'm not really sure. I think there's businesses out there that really like have this sort of zero profit model and really want to direct all their money towards the end customers, drive pricing down and just really concentrate on that. I think that us calling ourselves a social enterprise might take the limelight away from such businesses which have a specific set of things. That's why I'm quite cautious about describing ourselves as such. The way I, I do describe ourselves is we are a high aim impact business and I think that is in a different category in some ways. One thing just going back to I guess high impact you know, sort of announced recently so the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund one of the biggest in the world has just announced that it's going to sort of divest from from all fossil fuels and uh, start to reinvest in, in cleaner energy production. I guess you know sort of a while since you founded Bbox now how have you in those years have you seen sort of attitudes towards cleaner more sustainable energy production change over that time? I think majority of the world with few notable exceptions, believe what we're doing is not sustainable. I think that's now a widespread belief. And I think more and more people want to be engaged in being that change rather than just listening about it and doing stuff and people doing it from individual level to national levels, right? So I think that's a big change. And it's happened, it's still going on. I mean, that change, that attitude and outlook isn't complete, but like I would say on a, on a yearly basis, that attitude gets better. I'm sure you, many of the businesses you guys see go through your own platform in some way or form is part of that change, right? So I think that's an important part. But then again, I don't think any there's a general consensus about what that future economy looks like. 
right? And I think that scares a lot of people. Cars getting more expensive. What happens to batteries? Where does my power come from? My own utility bill? Who's going to put all this investment into all that infrastructure? I think those are sort of practical questions that someone has to kind of wrap into a concise vision and business model. And I think that's where we are today. I can't back a statistic, etc. in any way or form. In majority, I recognize there's a problem. And I think we're trying to anchor towards a common vision, but there's no business model that everyone agrees on. I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from. Well, I guess, you know, looking at that social shift in the narrative and the conversation that's sort of been happening, it started happening long before Beebox was was formed, um, but it's really sort of ramped up over the last few years. And I guess, you know, that's sort of been reflected in your growth and the industry's growth. And I'm assuming that's had an impact on your ability to raise funds for the business. So could you just take us through how did you approach your first funding round and and what are the differences obviously today in in, in how investors are looking at the, the problem? Pretty interesting question, because I think it's evolved a lot. So when we were raising our first round of money, in all honesty, having this technology in emerging market, the word was emerging markets back then, right? There was all the hype, impact investment, etc. Like that wasn't really a coin, maybe it was a coin word, but I, I didn't hear about it too much, to be honest. And I think there was a few people that had experience with emerging markets that were more open towards the, the, the use of technology. People especially who had experienced the boom of telecom or banking or in Asia in particular, some of the online businesses right like that started like taking off so through a contact i, I got introduced to vinod koslam who was the i mean he's a legendary silicon valley investor and founder of sun microsystem and uh, him having an indian background and having seen like the boom of technology i think he was immediately in our first meeting i, I think he understood the power of technology if you had this device that could do remote monitoring, remote control, switch things on and off, integrate with mobile money, sell electricity at a cheaper price than kerosene and candle and monitor everything remotely, that that would be a much more efficient thing to do than kerosene. I think picture the customer as well because of his background and experiences. So Costa Ventures became our first investor. I never realized that the importance of a brand, uh, our investor, I thought all money is green. I mean, we're raising dollars, right? But that's not the case when you're a young company. I think who you raise money from is extremely important of profiling your business. And we just happened to be get a bit lucky that it was mainstream, well-known investors. So I think that opened up a bunch of new doors for us, right? And also kind of legitimize in some ways the need for investing in technology for Africa, right? Because those are sort of people that actually set trends. Someone needs to be the first person to do something, and those are sort of people that do it. So that's something I'm, I'm grateful for. Then things started becoming easier. When we had revenue, that's a magical word, right? Like something comes in. Even if it's a dollar, something is coming in. And I think once that started coming in, people start understanding like the unit economics, the business model, etc. People can become a lot more scientific about it. So suddenly that whole thing about is it Africa, is it rural customer, etc. kind of all drops away. It's your financial model, your assumptions, your, it becomes a lot more academic exercise to raise capital even then you need to have people that kind of believed in the long-term outlook were comfortable with the geographic risks that we're taking so our, our series b was led by bamboo capital with a space-based private equity had heavily invested in microfinance in the earlier iteration i think they invested like a billion dollars in microfinance so they were comfortable with end customer 
consumer finance risk because they had this portfolio, I think one of the largest portfolios in the world at the time. And they had this sophistication with local currency financing and all that kind of stuff. And our series C uh, two, three years ago was led by NG, the French utility. So I find this kind of journey kind of interesting. And we start from this, uh, like this classical French family and fool category, mostly fools. And then uh, series A being like more of a tech based, justifying ourselves technology wise. Series B trying to justify ourselves that we can finance and customize customers at scale and see that we are now becoming a utility like like we would actually be interested in, in participating with us. So I think that sort of journey is interesting. And to date, I, we probably raised a little bit more than $100 million so far. And the issue that we have is that we still need to raise gazillions more dollars, billions, and to really solve the problem because the problem ahead of us is massive. And do you see, I guess it's probably a little bit long term, but thinking about that problem with a longer lens is do you see yourself diversifying into different continents away from Africa in the longer term is that where the financing going or is it just doubling down no, that's actually the plan for the next two years, Asia. We have a pilot going on right now in Philippines, in Pakistan, looking at places like Myanmar. So I think those are big opportunities for sure. And also mobile money is new to Asia, right? It happened in Africa. Asia started to absorb it quite a lot. And there's some exciting markets that I hope one day we can serve that on paper look like massive opportunity in places like Afghanistan, right? Like there's nearly 0% electrification and at some point in time, electricity needs to happen there too. So I think there's some big opportunities. But in some ways, Asia is also a bit more complicated market. There's a lot more red tape in general. And I think also it's probably a market that's more expensive to operate from a distribution cost perspective. So we can't fully rap- replicate the African model, I think. But uh, lots of stuff that we have uh, should be possible to cross-replicate. Before we go on to the sort of future plans, you kind of said data at one point and you mentioned there the sort of, I guess, the economies of scale of fundraising as you get bigger, it gets slightly easier. And you've talked in the past about sort of BBOX being a very data-led company and obviously would scale that efficiency is improved there. Talk to us a little bit about that and then also kind of what other benefits you've seen from those as you've... Yeah, actually, to be honest, data was an accident to the business, but now core to the business. It kind of all started with how do we switch a customer on and off remotely? That was it. That was the problem. And the byproduct was a lot of data. We have connectivity to the customer. We can we can see each box, how it's behaving, current voltages, etc. In the beginning, we were using it on and off. But then we started realizing that actually it's a very important psychological tool between perceived risk and real risk. That's actually the developing world's biggest problem. When we think about developing world, we just somehow think it's more riskier, right? The people can't afford. And all the sort of misconceptions that happen, I don't know how, how but environment that people often grown up in. The only thing that can, can equalize that to reality is data. So data suddenly, instead of like having uh, preconceptions about things, if you could have really detailed data about how a customer behaves, how they pay, I essentially extract out a credit rating per household, ability to pay, capacity to pay, and frequency of pay, then it becomes much more mathematical. You're just looking at a, at a portfolio of customers that have certain traits. And now we collect well over like three, four billion data points a day. We employ like an army of data scientists that are looking at extracting out all sorts of useful metrics into behavior and prediction. Some of the silly predictions we can do is like, oh, you have a dirty solar panel. They get a text message. Please like throw water at your solar panel. I'm sure we say something more sophisticated than that, but like uh, basically throw a bucket of water on your solar panel to the fact that we can actually detect 
very specific noise issues that can happen on a, on a particular part of the electronics and we can send a new firmware to fix it. So the customer never notices, etc. and it's a complete software fix. So the ability to have that kind of spectrum of things is pretty interesting technically and from a consumer perspective, we can predict a bit like Amazon, I guess, that kind of suggests like what next product you should buy or whatever not, right? And we, we have an increasing amount of products and services that we are selling. So we're using that data to be able to actually suggest more targeted upselling uh, to our customers and then managing our staff. So, so if you log into our B-Box work app as a technician or a shopkeeper, you see exactly your next task, which is like call this customer, pick up this product, install that guy, whatever the, the, the thing is. So the, that also cuts out the need of that middle management and becomes a lot more merit-based as well in your performance. What I'd just like to sort of get into, because I think you've, you've talked a lot about problem solving, and I guess there are some problems that you just maybe don't solve. And, and a lot of entrepreneurs are, they, you know, they often say things like they're, they're defined as much by their, their struggles and their failures as their successes. Can you point to, to any moments maybe in, in B-Box's history where you felt like you failed um, or weren't able to solve the problem or weren't able to develop the right solution? I mean, the worst failure I know in B-Box is like early days where we produced 2000 system and all failed, <laughs> which is quite important that 30 survived. But so we had some hope. I think it gives you a bit of like that sort of sense check that you can't rush hardware development. Software is one of those things that, you know, like you can iterate, you can like mess around, it fails. Some people get angry, you can't log in anymore, but it's often quite fixable quite rapidly. That sort of reverse process in hardware, there's no like backup to go to to a previous version. That was a big realization. And hardware takes time. Hardware is annoying. It's a long process. The other big failure I think made me learn quite early on was company culture. Just because a person looks great on CV doesn't mean he's right for your company, especially in those early days. I have this personal belief that the first 10, 12 people define your company. I'm sure this is the case here at Cedars as well. And if you get that slightly wrong, it takes a really long time to, to can wine. So we had a sort of issues in the beginning. We might have recruited a few people that look great on paper, but we're not aligned to the cultural way. So we want to do business or necessarily share our values, right? And you can't just have hired guns because they're great on paper. Now, nowadays, I'm much more cautious. I'm like, I don't really care what your CV says. Who are you? <laughs> Why do you wake up? Like, what worries you? Those, those, those sort of things for me has become far more important over time than how, many, how much money you raised back in the day. I mean, just on that, those early days of, of the company culture, I guess there's a risk of going into business with a couple of friends. There's, there's maybe a desire to, to assume that it'd be great because you were friends and why wouldn't you? How did you avoid those, maybe a confirmation bias early on with, with your co-founders? To be honest, we, like, because we had this Equinox organization before, it's effectively our second startup in some ways. So we had some experience of working together. And there were, I guess, people in Equinox that got active, then not that active, etc. So we, Equinox in some ways served as our filter process. And it's all relationship you need to talk. So we make it a point every six months to go somewhere. And still today, some random location, just given skiing, went to, a, to the Maldives, different places over, over, over the years just to chat like what's going on what should we do how do we divide how we do it and over time you find a way of working together right i think a lot of founders that are young i mean even us in many ways it's like it's like any other relationship right you have to just be very very open about your issues and try to build up that trust to solve it if you're not that then i think a lot of stuff happens and then managing egos a lot of early days in any companies you have no money 
you have no real product you have no real like the only thing you have is glory management right that's often where things go wrong little thing i've seen some startups getting like oh who do we send to an award type thing right and people like i don't know massive drama if you fail at that level then you like i heard about another friend of mine who said like they had issues about their furniture selection two of the founders got really involved in the in the office design so if things fail at that level you probably should not be working together that should be maybe a telltale signs we, we dived into it a little bit there um, in terms of what your plans are next but i guess what's the the ultimate vision for, for beatbox to provide everyone with electricity by 2030. That's what we're trying to work on. So we're doing three to 500 new homes per day. We need to get to three to 5,000 homes per day in the next 24 months at least. It's gonna be difficult. I think to get to that sort of level of scale, I guess it's gonna take growth of pretty much every sort of metric, both finances and team. And for, for the financing point, do you anticipate going public? Like what is, what is your fundraising? strategy i think ultimately it's about making sure that we can execute that vision that going public means that we can accelerate that that vision or that actually secures that vision better than for sure but i don't think that's where we are in our mindset today right Uh, we have capital to deploy we have a business model to run but one thing is we're trying to do hard right now is to actually behave like a professional company or a public company or etc in terms of getting our reporting right getting the right management teams in place, uh, making sure that all on the, on the compliance and internal controls perspective is the case because this sort of growth that we're talking about also means that your internal controls, your internal management needs to be like top class. So yeah, uh, all options on the table. All we can say is that thanks for coming. That was Thank really interesting. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. As always, you can find out more about our guests in the podcast description or online at cedars.com forward slash yourself, where you can also find this episode's transcript and other exclusive content. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you want to invest in some of the best and brightest startups in Europe, sign up at cedars.com forward slash sign up. See you next week.